Hello, and welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by G.K. Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, It's Only Human, Philosophy in Prehistoric Africa. Is philosophy like ballet, or is it more like dance? This is a question posed by the historian of philosophy, Justin E.H. Smith. The point is, of course, not that philosophy must involve wearing special shoes. After all, Socrates is famous for having gone barefoot. Rather, Smith wants to make us think about what philosophy is, and what is involved in studying its history. If philosophy is like ballet, then it is a distinctive cultural tradition whose origin can be traced back to a specific time and place. Ballet was first invented in Italy during the Renaissance, and then developed into the art form we know today in France during the 17th century. Perhaps we can tell a similar story about the invention and development of philosophy. But what if philosophy is better compared, not with a culturally unique form of dance like ballet, but rather with dance itself? Perhaps it too is a universal activity that is pursued by people of all cultures, varying immensely in its forms, its uses, and its accepted norms. If we take this idea seriously and suppose that philosophy is truly universal, then we must conclude that it has existed for as long as, and wherever, humans as we know them have existed. That's the hypothesis we'll be exploring in this episode. Of course, it's common to assume that philosophy is more like ballet. Just as we can trace ballet back to Renaissance Italy, we often trace philosophy back to ancient Greece. After all, the word philosophia is an ancient Greek one. This is why the History of Philosophy Without Any Gaps podcast started with the earliest philosophers who wrote in ancient Greek, namely the first pre-Socratics who lived on the coast of modern-day Turkey in the 6th century BC. But more recently, we began to look at ancient Indian philosophy, which arose independently of ancient Greece, even if it is sometimes claimed that ideas were traded between the two cultures, along with other goods. To recognize the existence of ancient Indian philosophy means denying that philosophy is like ballet. It does not yet imply, though, that philosophy is universal, like dance. After all, perhaps philosophy emerged twice in India and in Greece, but only in those places. If we want to explore the hypothesis that philosophy is genuinely universal, we'll need to hazard a definition of philosophy broad enough to suit this hypothesis, while not being so broad as to treat philosophy as simply interchangeable with thinking in general. We might say that people think philosophically when they raise and seek to answer fundamental questions about the nature of things, about how we know what it is possible to know, or about what we ought to value and how we ought to live our lives. A definition like this manages to capture the major traditional subdivisions of philosophy as an academic discipline, such as metaphysics, epistemology, and ethics, yet it also captures a thought that has probably struck many apparent. Philosophy must belong to the human condition because even small children ask hard questions about what things are, what is good or bad, and how we know things. Indeed, parents sometimes wish their children could be less philosophical, or at least less often and less insistently. Even if we are reluctant to say that every human is a born philosopher, at least until they get it knocked out of them in high school, we should still take seriously the idea that at least some curious individuals in all societies have raised and sought to answer such questions. 
If this is so, then historians of philosophy who want to tell the story of the birth and development of philosophy face a truly daunting task. How do we go about tracing the origins of philosophy if it can be found everywhere and has always been with us? No doubt a truly precise genealogy is impossible, but we can at least say this. If philosophy is indeed universal, then it began in Africa, because Africa is the birthplace of humankind. Indeed, not just its birthplace, but its long-term home, which humans left only recently in the great scheme of things. Humans began to evolve from apes around 6 million years ago, and only left Africa about 100,000 years ago. It's thus been estimated that more than two-thirds of our bipedal ancestors have lived in Africa, and that 98% of the ancestors of all modern humans north of the Sahara were Africans. We shouldn't immediately leap to the assumption that 98% of all philosophers have been Africans, though. It's one thing to find remains of humans who are anatomically recognizable as being the same species as us, another to have evidence that early humans had developed the capacities for thought and language that are necessary for doing philosophy. The fossil and archaeological evidence is widely thought to suggest that our species, Homo sapiens, attained the physical characteristics that differentiate us from earlier species of hominid ancestors significantly earlier than the time during which we began to display our distinctive behavior. As it's sometimes put, anatomical modernity came long before behavioral modernity. And until recently, and here we mean really recently, like the last several decades, there was a widespread belief among paleoanthropologists, the people who study the evolutionary development of our species, that while the earliest human remains are found in Africa, it is Europe that boasts the earliest remains of human culture. The great shift would thus be witnessed not in the archaeological remains of our African ancestors, but in European cave paintings. It is beyond doubt that Africa is the place to look for the slow emergence of modern humanity in the anatomical sense. Volcanic ash in Tanzania preserves footprints that are the earliest marks of upright posture, the earlier Homo ergaster has been found in Kenya and dated to about one and a half million years ago, while African remains show that Homo erectus achieved so-called anatomical modernity between two and three hundred thousand years ago. The oldest Homo sapiens from about one and a half hundred thousand years ago has been discovered in what is now Ethiopia. East Africa, especially in the Rift Valley, offered favorable conditions for both the emergence of these earliest humans and the preservation of their remains, though discoveries have also been made in West and North Africa. It's actually disputed whether humans would have first evolved from apes in a savanna or rainforest setting, or whether they may even have at first been apes that took to living in the water as well as on land. One crucial development would have been the capacity for language, which required a shift in the anatomy of the larynx. This and other steps in the evolutionary process have been made the subject of a good deal of speculation and guesswork. One intriguing thought is that emotional intimacy between the earliest humans may have been a significant driver in the process. The oldest artifacts we have are stone tools, such as hand axes. With the power of these tools, humans migrated out of Africa, possibly in successive waves. And speaking of waves, humans, rather astonishingly, managed to reach Australia by 60,000 years ago, which obviously would have required boat-building technology and some pretty fearless sea voyaging. But even these rudimentary technologies do not yet qualify as behavioral modernity. When and where do we reach that point? 
Well, a theory that reached the height of its popularity in the 1980s held that we did not become behaviorally modern until about 40,000 years ago, and that it happened in Europe. Many listeners will have heard of the cave paintings in southern Europe, the most famous of which is in Lascaux in France. These date back to the era of European prehistory known as the Upper Paleolithic between 50 and 10,000 years ago. The change in behavior in this period is so noticeable in the archaeological record that it became known as the Human Revolution. This revolution was characterized by further technological advances, such as better stone tools, but it was also, as indicated by the renown of the cave paintings, a flowering of symbolic culture. The cave paintings are evidence of human handiwork, aimed not simply at survival, but at the creation of decoration and representational art. To this day, there are some who accept the idea of a human revolution occurring in Europe during the Upper Paleolithic. Excavations and interpretations of archaeological evidence from Africa, however, have turned that idea into a minority view. One of the views that has arisen to displace it holds that, when we pay attention to Africa, the idea of a human revolution simply loses any value. This is the position of Sally McBriarty, a paleoanthropologist at the University of Connecticut. She argues that much of the behavior once thought to be new in the Upper Paleolithic can be found much earlier in Africa, during the period of African prehistory known as the Middle Stone Age, which stretches on her account from around 285,000 to 40,000 years ago. There was, according to McBriarty, no revolution, just a series of gradual developments over a long period and in various places on the African continent. Her position is worth highlighting for at least two reasons. First, she argues that the idea of a human revolution is a product of Eurocentrism, the privileging of Europe and its particular historical path over objective consideration of the history of Africa and other parts of the world. And heads up, it's entirely possible that we may run into Eurocentrism again at some point as we trace the history of African philosophy in the upcoming episodes. Second, one of the papers in which she expresses her position has the title Down with the Revolution, suggesting that we should really be getting her to help invent titles for those episodes. If we do retain the notion of a human revolution, we might locate it in southern Africa rather than in southern France, and at a much earlier time than the transition to the Upper Paleolithic in Europe. On the coast of South Africa, at a site known as the Blombos Cave, archaeologists have discovered remains including sea snail shells, pierced in a way that suggests they were used as beads for necklaces or bracelets, as well as pieces of engraved ochre, that is, blocks of earth, capable of producing colored powder into which geometrical patterns were scratched. These materials seem to be around 77,000 years old, among the oldest finds of beads anywhere in the world. It has been argued that, however long the process of developing modern thinking and language skills stretches back, we have here all we need to be sure that these skills were fully developed in this part of Africa by that time. The beads, stained red by the ochre, indicate concern by those who wore them with how they looked to others, which may have been a matter of communicating social status. The abstract engravings in similar patterns on different blocks indicate an understanding of the design itself as meaningful in a way that, combined with the beads, suggests a possibly ritualistic purpose. It seems very likely that grammatically complex language of the kind we associate with being human today accompanied and supported these symbolic functions. But if you're unwilling to be impressed by beads and insist on waiting for cave art, Africa offers that too. The Apollo 11 cave, located in present-day Namibia, 
was excavated in 1969, the year of the space mission after which it is named. It contains some stone slabs with paintings of animals on them, executed more than 25,000 years ago. This makes them the oldest paintings yet found in Africa, and some of the oldest artworks anywhere in the world, older, for instance, than the cave paintings at Lascaux. The same cave has geometrical paintings done on the walls, and nearby images of animals are engraved into rock, while the more famous slabs were transported to this rock shelter from elsewhere. Hence, they have been described with the French expression art mobilier. Other finds in the area show that prehistoric peoples lived here at least intermittently for many thousands of years, leaving their traces in the form of decorated eggshells and stone implements like cutting blades. Obviously, the interpretation of these geometrical and animal images, like prehistoric rock art found elsewhere in the world, is a matter of considerable speculation. One prominent interpretation has been put forward by J.D. Lewis Williams. He has carefully studied more recent rock art produced by the San people, hunter-gatherers of southern Africa, and tried to understand how the paintings might connect to the cultural practices of the San. In particular, he proposes that these can be understood within the context of San shamanism, in which certain people receive a special religious revelation. These manifest as altered states of consciousness, often involving a vision of an alternative reality populated by spirits. A straightforward inference could be that the rock art is a depiction of what such shamans have been seeing in their visions, and perhaps they have been seeing them for millennia since before the time that Aristotle was a gleam in his great-great-great-grandfather's eye. Lewis Williams points to neurological factors that could help to explain the commonalities between such ecstatic experiences across space and time. But he also argues for a still more intimate connection between shamanism and the paintings than a mere recording of supernatural experiences. The paintings may actually have been part of the ritual. He proposes a four-step process, with a vision followed by a preparation of paint that is understood to have its own supernatural properties, then the painting, and then use of the resulting pictures in further ritual acts. Obviously, we are not in a position to assess the merits of this interpretation. We mention it because, first of all, it's interesting, but also because it suggests the complex ideas that could have been associated with the paintings by those who originally made them, ideas that had to do with an understanding of the place of humans in a wider, perhaps usually invisible, reality. It's also worth noting because it gives us a first taste of a methodology we'll be seeing later in this series. In the absence of written records, scholars have turned to the empirical methods of anthropology to learn indirectly about the way that earlier, in this case possibly far, far earlier, peoples have answered questions that were philosophical in the broad sense we have suggested. Another way in which we might explore the early development of philosophical thought in Africa is to consider paleoanthropologist Stephen Mithen's thoughts on the early origins of art, religion, and science. Mithen argues that our ancestors, while evolving from those that we have in common with other apes, developed specialized intelligences, a social intelligence for interacting with one another, a natural history intelligence for understanding and interacting with the natural world, and a technical intelligence for manipulating things like stone and wood. It is clear that each of these specialized intelligences would have benefited our hunting and gathering ancestors in their fight for survival, yet the breakthrough to the modern mind only occurred, according to Mithen, once we achieved cognitive fluidity, 
that is, the ability to integrate knowledge from these three different domains. Art, for example, involves combining the capacity for intentional communication, given by social intelligence, the ability to interpret signs of life that comes from natural history intelligence, and from technical intelligence, the ability to intentionally produce an artifact on the basis of a planned template. If Mithin is right about this, then we can speculate that philosophy might have first developed among our ancestors in Africa when we began to use knowledge from one domain in order to raise critical questions about what we know in another domain. For example, integrating social intelligence with natural history intelligence may have led our African ancestors to ask whether non-human animals should be seen as fundamentally similar to us. We could then see anthropomorphism, that is, the attribution of human traits to non-human animals, which is a common element of prehistoric art, as one popular response to this philosophical question. By the same token, integrating technical intelligence with natural history intelligence may have led our African ancestors to ask whether the things we see in nature were purposefully created in the same manner in which we create tools and art. Clearly, this philosophical question easily leads us in the direction of the idea of a creator god. If we do not assume that philosophy only came to Africa in the form of the tradition born in ancient Greece, and remain open to the possibility that philosophy has existed in all human societies, then reconstructions of this sort are the right way to start telling the story of philosophy in Africa. In doing so, we would presumably be telling the story of the very beginning of philosophy itself. From this perspective, as we suggested in our first episode, Africana philosophy can plausibly be seen as the oldest tradition of philosophy there is. That is, however, a conclusion we might reach even if we were to deny the philosophical interest of prehistoric art and paleoanthropology, for also long before the gleam in the eye period of Aristotle's career, there was ancient Egyptian civilization. This culture will give us the first recorded writing of Africa, and for that matter, some of the earliest recorded writing known from anywhere on Earth. We're going to show you in upcoming episodes that some of this material is clearly philosophical in nature. But first, we want to offer some context for the Egyptian contribution by spending one episode beyond the confines of the African continent. Next time, we'll be looking at the roughly contemporary productions of Mesopotamian culture and asking whether evidence from that culture, ranging from magical spells to the Epic of Gilgamesh, might show that the Greeks were not the first to produce writings that should interest the historian of philosophy. That's next time here on The History of Africana Philosophy. (laughs) 